as we uh, come to look at this passage from the Bible, Psalm 2, I want to encourage you to join with me in praying that the God who is the God of peace and the God of love would speak truth into our hearts through his good word about the Lord Jesus this morning. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you have promised to bring about a world of peace. We thank you that you're the God who, in love, makes enemies your friends. And we thank you that when we come to your word, you speak of these things because you speak of your Son, the Lord Jesus, the Prince of Peace. Uh, Please help us to hear your voice this morning. Whatever we come with, whatever we believe, whatever is on our hearts and minds, would we hear from you for Jesus' name's sake. Amen. They shall not grow old as we who are left grow old. Age shall not weary them, nor the years condemn. At the going down of the sun and in the morning, we will remember them. Do you remember a few years ago when there was a concern that people weren't taking Remembrance Sunday seriously? The last few people who'd lived through the Great War, if that is what you can call a war of 1914 to 18, were dying. There was a, an increasingly small number who had lived through the horrors of the Second World War. And it appeared that Remembrance Sunday was drifting from our consciousness. And then there was the Gulf War. And there was Afghanistan. And there was Iraq. And the coffins were flown by the RAF into their base in Wiltshire, loaded into hearses, and paraded in silence through the streets of Wooden Bassett as they were taken back to their base and to their loved ones. And as their grief grew, and as the names grew week by week in our news, so Remembrance Sunday became more poignant again. We will remember them. Why is it that each year we have more people to remember? The Sunday People, the radio told me this morning, in its article about Remembrance Sunday, says that we have failed to learn the lessons of the past. That only when we learn those lessons, the lessons of the brutality of war, will we truly honor the memory of those who have died. Why is it that we keep having Remembrance Sunday with no shortage of new names to remember? The great news of our Bible passage this morning is that God has appointed a ruler who he promises will bring peace and justice to our world. The book of Psalms is a book of songs in the middle of the Bible. They were largely written 1000 BC, many of them by a great king of God's Old Testament people, Israel, the King David. But, But as with every book of the Bible, Psalms in the end points us forward to one person, to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the ultimate king of God's people. And in this very emotional psalm, God lays out why he is the king who in the end will bring a rule of peace to a broken world. Just just look at the first verse. The psalm's going to appear behind me. The psalm starts with a question. Isn't this a question we ask ourselves? Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? 
It's a great question for Remembrance Sunday, isn't it? Why do people seem to strive over and over again to get power for themselves and not see the lessons of history? Why do dictators come and go? Hitler or Stalin or Saddam Hussein or Assad? Why? But this isn't just human governments brutally fighting one another to control a little greater strip of land. No, this is a far more serious rebellion. This is rebellion against God. The kings of the earth, verse 2 tells us, rise up and rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed. This is, this is united nations standing against God's anointed king. That's who the anointed is, the Messiah, God's chosen ruler. And you see how people feel about living under God's rule in verse 3? Let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. See, that's the way people feel about living under the rule of God. Freedom's a powerful longing in our hearts, isn't it? I guess most of us long to feel free. Uh, maybe at the moment it's simply freedom from the pressures of work or the pressures of family or the constraints of our bank balance. But, but we have this, this longing for freedom. We believe freedom is something worth fighting for. I guess most people would say that the two world wars were fights for freedom. Certainly the second world war. We shall defend our island whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches we shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. And if in part, which I do not for one moment believe, this island or a large part of it were subjugated and starving, then our empire beyond the seas, armed and guarded by the British fleet, would carry on the struggle until in God's good time the new world with all its power and might steps forth to the rescue and the liberation of the old. The words of Winston Churchill to Parliament in May 1940. We long for rescue and liberation. Liberation, freedom. The problem is that humanity has decided that freedom is found in living without reference to the God who made us and loves us. I guess that's why most people think Christianity is the opposite of freedom. God gives us rules that, that chain us up, that imprison us in a, a world of religion and intolerance and misery. Oh, we want to break the shackles of God's rule. But, but the problem is that the history of the world we have is a record of humanity's attempts to live in their self-created freedom outside of relationship with God. In fact, the, the very sense of longing for something better, longing for a peace, not just in the, the world out there, but in our lives themselves, longing to an end of conflict in our workplaces and in our families, longing for a peace that eludes us is just a sign that we were created to find freedom in relationship with God. I was at a wedding reception last night. I was sitting on a table, and there were some, some of the uh, younger women, girls in, in our church on the table. I was chatting to them about their normal life. Uh, one of them, uh, 
a couple of weeks ago, had a, a broken bottle thrown into her face because she'd witnessed someone trying to stab someone else in Lambeth. Don't, don't we read our, our newspapers and we read of a world, not a war nation to nation now, but, but a war between people on our streets? Don't we long for the freedom to walk through our streets at night time and feel safe anywhere in our great city of London? Doesn't it strike you odd that human beings have never been able to do that? That in relationship with one another, we, we cannot create a society where we genuinely feel we have freedom and peace? Isn't, isn't this the world we live in? The world is hostile to God, hostile to Jesus, even in some ways hostile to Christians. In, in the New Testament, when Peter and John, two of Jesus' first followers, when they get arrested for healing a man and telling him about God's love in the Lord Jesus Christ, they quote this psalm to explain the way the world is raging against God. You see, in the end, the reason that we fight one another is that we've made ourselves enemies of the God who loves us. And actually, that enmity does us no good at all. Look at what God is doing in verse 4. The one enthroned in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. You see, God sits in his, his high authority above the earth, and he looks down at the pitiful efforts of people to run the world without him, and he mocks their puny claims to independence. I can remember the first time I swore at my parents. I'd like to say it was the only time, but I had to cross that out of my notes because I wasn't so sure. I think I was quite young, 11, 12, but I went for a category A swear word. I won't use it this morning. And I can remember the sort of shock. I don't know if you've sworn at your parents for the first time. And there's a sort of shock you've done it because that, that divide between school and home was suddenly broken out in the kitchen and accidentally the word came out of your mouth. And you're like, oh. And there's the shock from them because the one that they brought up and wiped his bottom and he was so cute has suddenly used this foul expletive to them. But, but, but there's this pause and shock. And then they just laughed at me. It was brilliant. They mocked me. They, they just laughed at my childish tantrum because it was pathetic. And the God who creates the world who sustains the world, who puts us in it to enjoy a relationship of love with him, who keeps us breathing and our, our hearts pumping blood around our bodies, who gives us everything that we enjoy, looks down from his throne and looks at us like some overheated toddler jumping up and down saying, I'm in charge, I'm in charge, I want it my way. And he says, really? Is that that best you can do? Look what he says in verse 5. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath. You see, when anyone gets a glimpse of who God truly is in the Bible, they fall flat on the face. Because in the end, God is God and he is awesome in his power and he is right in his anger. Righteously anger against all that is evil and wrong in the world. It's like the difference between sort of running your boss down behind their backs and to their face, isn't it? 
I mean, a lot of people will run their boss down behind their backs to other colleagues in the workplace. They'll, they'll give them a bit of a bad time. They'll run them down. But, but when the boss walks in the room, conversation changes. Oh, would you like a coffee? How can, how can I help you, sir? Man. Because this is the person who employs them, who has power over them, who, who pays them and fouls them. When we're faced with the reality of the God who, who runs the universe, well, the Bible says we'll be a little slower to speak out against him. But the God who looks down upon us in our desperate efforts to run the world and, and laughs at how pitiful they are is not the, the distant mocking dictator who doesn't care about us because God's laughter is, is mingled with the grief that he has over, over the people he has made. And so he acts to bring a king who will restore his world. And that king is his precious son. You see that in verse 7? He says, verse 6, I've installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I've become your father. And the title son was given to the kings of Israel, God's people in the Old Testament. And actually, King David was promised that one of his sons would rule over God's people forever. But, but something is bigger than that is being talked about here. Something bigger than Israel and, and David in the Old Testament. Because look down at verse 8. Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. This is one who God is going to send who will rule over the whole of creation. And when the Lord Jesus Christ began his ministry on earth, when he was baptized, a voice came from heaven. You are my son, whom, you, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. God says, here he is. This is my king. Now, now, we're rightly worried, aren't we, by powerful rulers. I mean, history has shown us men cannot be trusted. Today, we, we remember millions who might not have died if Hitler or Stalin or Assad had never risen to power. But, but God sets a very different type of ruler over his world. He, he sends one who doesn't brutally punish his enemies, but who comes to be brutally punished so that his enemies can become his friends. He sends one who doesn't bring death to millions, but rather dies so that millions, billions even, can say, the Son of God loved me and gave up himself for me. Uh, do you know actually in Mark's account of Jesus' life, who, who the first person to declare Jesus God's eternal king, the son of God is? It happens in an extraordinary time. But let me read to you. It's right from the other end of Mark's account. Mark chapter 15, verse 39. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this man, was the Son of God. See, the man who'd been in charge of the execution of Jesus Christ, a hardened Roman soldier who'd killed many people, looks at the death of this man, and he says, that is God's king. It's a declaration proved right. Two days later, 
when God proves Jesus is his king once and for all, as he raises him from the dead. The Apostle Paul writes in Romans 1, he was declared with power to be son of God by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. And now he is raised to rule, ascended to heaven. He sits at God, his Father's right hand, and he will rule over all people. And so the psalm says in verse 9, you will break them with a rod of iron, you will dash them to pieces like pottery. Did you see the nature of the rule of God's king? It, it can't be rejected. All opposition will be smashed. It's a picture, isn't it, of you taking a, a sledgehammer to your china set. The, the teacups and the saucers, they don't have a chance. If you set yourself against the one who God has set over his creation, there is no hope. I don't know if you've ever watched the film War Horse. In our, our family, we didn't think it was great. It got nicknamed Warhorse. But it is a very poignant film. It has scenes of trenches in World War I. And probably none more poignant moment than the splendid charge of the cavalry, that the horses beautifully groomed, swords sharpened, uniforms immaculate, buttons polished, so much effort invested, so much effort wasted. Because they rode confidently across the field, there was only ever going to be one result. The machine guns began to chatter, the bullets rained down on them, and men and horses fell in mid-stride. It wasn't a battle, it was a slaughter. And one day the Bible says that God's King Jesus will hold every person in the world to account. Oh, it's going to be a great day. The day when God promises to judge the world and end war forever. On that day, every war criminal will receive justice. Every dictator who died peacefully in their sleep will face the righteous anger of God. Every concentration camp officer who's just tanned themselves in Argentina since the Second World War around a pool will face the justice they deserve. It'll be a great day. But it'll be a day when all people face the God they have rejected. I can't say this with enough seriousness on Remembrance Day, that if, if we, if you, insist on rejecting God and his King Jesus, one day you will face him. And this psalm and the Bible makes clear that that day is pictured not as a battle but a slaughter. That all those who reject the God of love who gives them life will only face eternal death and his anger. They said that the trenches were like hell on earth. The trenches don't even get close to experiencing hell. That, that's why as the psalmist ends, he says, look, there's only one place you need to be. It's on the right side of God's son, his king. Look what he says in verse 10. Therefore, you kings, be wise, be warned, you rulers of the earth. It doesn't matter who you are, how much power you have in this world, or how insignificant you feel you are now. The same offer is open to all. Come to God's king. Because verse 11, serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. 
acknowledge that God is the awesome creator and ruler of all, but also experience the joy of celebration because in his loving rule, you find perfect peace, a peace that comes through his son. So verse 12, kiss the son or he will be angry and your way will lead to destruction for his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. A kiss is a sign of of homage, of love. Kiss the son. Come to him, says the psalmist. Look, look, if you get the wrong side of God, his anger, his justice, it's a terrible thing to face. Your, Your life will only lead to one way, to destruction. Isn't that what we see in the world around us? But, but this is talking about an eternal destruction. But, but if you will come to him, if you will acknowledge him, then you will find refuge. In fact, you will find blessing. You see, that's the extraordinary thing about the Bible. It's actually the extraordinary thing about the Christian message. All other religions of the world say, if you sort out your life, God will stop being angry with you, and he will probably take you into heaven, if you're lucky. But, but the message of the Bible is, you need to acknowledge that you cannot sort out your life or the world. You have rejected God, and he is rightfully angry with you. And then come to him, because he has done everything to deal with the way you have disobeyed him. To come to the one we've angered for refuge. That's because of the sort of king Jesus is. You see, the crown Jesus wore was not a crown of gold, but a crown of thorns. And the throne that Jesus sat on was not a throne of velvet red, but his throne was a cross stained with the red of his blood. And he came not that people might serve him, but that he might serve us by giving his life. And God did not pour out his wrath upon us, but rather God's wrath was poured about on his son. God's king took our punishment for the way that we treat him. He took in his body on the cross the very things that we deserve. So so that the arms once outstretched in agony are now the arms opened to envelop you in safety if you will take refuge in them. There's a story of Native Americans, uh, I guess during the 19th century, and this tribe had been uh, suffering a a spate of thefts. Uh, Things like chickens and people's personal property had gone missing. Understandably, the the chief of the tribe was angered by this, and he ordered that a a search of everyone's tent be made, and when the culprit was found, that they would receive the harshest punishment the tribe had, 30 lashes of the whip. The search was conducted, and after, after a while, there was both a cry of success and shock, because it was found that in the tent that housed the chief's own family were the missing goods hidden among the bedding of his youngest son. The boy was brought out. His head hung low with shame. And the chief stood and and passed sentence, a just and honest man. He took his own son and bound him to a pole in the middle of the camp. 
Then he ordered the the strongest warrior to take a, a vicious whip and give him 30 lashes. But just before the warrior lifted the whip, the chief took off his own shirt and wrapped his son in his arms and offered his back to the warrior and simply said, continue. You see, the God whom we have angered, the one who we've rejected, the one who we've declared ourselves enemies against, comes down in the person of his powerful king, and he stretches out his arms and takes into his body upon himself all the mess and anger and hatred and war we have raged against one another. And he says, continue as he bears what we deserve. And so we can find blessing. But blessing means happiness, not not the trivial happiness of day-to-day worldly happiness, but the deep joy of knowing that God loves you and he forgives you, and the certain joy that in the future you will go to be with him where you can only experience peace, love, and forgiveness forever. We often quote on Remembrance Day, greater love has no man than this than to give his life for his friends. It didn't come from a poet of the war. It came from the mouth of the Lord Jesus Christ. He has given his life for his friends. Will you come and kiss the son? Will you be one of his friends? Now that, this might all be very new to you. Can I encourage you to think more? Think more about the reality of our world. Think more about our inability to change it. But most of all, think more about who the Lord Jesus is. We have some copies of accounts of his life on the way out. You can pick one of four, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The options haven't changed for the last 2,000 years. Why not take one and read of the Lord Jesus? There's some booklets um, uh, published just talking about how those serving the armed forces have found comfort and help in the Christian message. Why not take one of those? Why not come and chat to someone here who you've seen up the front or a Christian friend you have? Why not talk more of the Lord Jesus Christ today? Why not come and kiss the Son And if you are someone here who has kissed the Son, the Lord Jesus, and you know you're safe in his arms, and you know you're facing opposition now because he is your king, and you know you might even suffer loyalty for your loyalty to him, well, remember, your loving king rules his world. Your future is in a home where you will enjoy peace with him. He is the one who bore God's wrath for you, the Son of God, who died in your place. And in that love, he guarantees that he'll take you home to be with him. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you so much that the Lord Jesus 
died for us. He laid down his life for his enemies that we might become his friends. Thank you that he rose again and was declared your king forever. Thank you that we can be certain of a future world of peace with him. Now, please, our Father, this Remembrance Sunday, help us above all to remember the Lord Jesus Christ. For his name's sake, amen.